0: So, what do you do when you find yourself overwhelmed by troubles? Well, no doubt uh, those who measure such things, ratings and such, say with Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and all such, they can tell you what most of us are doing uh, in this time of feeling overwhelmed by troubles and stressed. We binge watch a lot of television programs. There is also a certainly, um, and has been for some time, a rather novel way of Dealing with our our trouble our troubles our concerns. We find ourselves to be overwhelmed by those things and that is what has been a, a Whimsically called a rage room a rage room uh, some of you may be familiar with that That's a, a, a situation a setting where you have uh, Breakable items set up set aside office equipment and such and then you have shall we say, instruments of destruction that are given to the guests of the rage room. And that can be a baseball bat or a metal pipe or a, a club or some other a sledgehammer or some other instrument of destruction, something along those lines. And the, and the idea of simply being that the guest is then given the, these, these tools to go and just tear apart, just destroy, utterly destroy these fragile breakable items. And of course, Uh, You're given, if you're at one of these places, you're given protective equipment so you don't hurt yourself as you're swinging things around and debris is flying and all of that. But the goal, the goal is that when you come out of it, you have found your stress to be relieved, your anger to be managed, and perhaps, perhaps for, well, most likely even for anyone that would attend, just a little bit of a physical exertion and a decent workout in the course of it. Well, a little bit has been written about these rage rooms, and are they actually really doing us good? Uh, and you could ask yourself the same question about binge watching television shows and movies and such. Is to what true good is it doing us? That's, that's not to say that there's not a time for just kind of relaxing and unwinding and all of that. But if the goal, if the goal is to think you're going into that experience and in the course of your distraction, somehow the deep issues within you are going to be mended and healed in the course of that, then you, you're deceived. And a lot of psychologists and experts are writing about this, this sort of thing because in the time that you're spending doing those, participating in those kinds of activities, yeah, you're forgetting about it, but um, you're not really dealing with the real issues, the real issues that brought you in there in the first place and what it is that's making you struggle with it so profoundly. So all that's to say, we need something else. We need something else, which then takes us to our text, Psalm 11. Psalm 11, another in this series that we're in here in these weeks, looking to the psalms, trying to learn how to pray in troubled times. Psalm 11, it's not a long passage, but I can assure you it is quite profound in its insight. Psalm 11, hear now the word of God. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Well, uh, can we pray for just a moment? Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this passage that we could spend some time in here this morning. To be sure, uh, it, it is not a long text And it is, uh, at least on the surface, fairly simple to understand, but the insight and the ramifications here are tremendous. And we ask that as we just begin a a little bit of time here in study and contemplation together, uh, that you would be speaking deeply to us, moving deeply within us, uh, such that Even in these strange circumstances where we're sitting in our living rooms and looking at a smartphone or a tablet or a computer or television screen or whatever, and whether we're doing this uh, live and streaming or watching it later and recorded, um, we know that the mediums do not limit you, and you can move in any way you see fit. And whether we would be gathered together live in this sanctuary or hiding in a cave or huddled under a tree or in a hut, whatever it might be, the Word of God is powerful and the Spirit of God is at work. And the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom is real. Amen. I want to take you to a time in David's life, uh, experience of David's life that some of you may be familiar with, some of you may be uh, unfamiliar with, and that's, that's fine. Uh, it's the time period, it's before he's actually King David. It's the time period not long after he has killed the giant Goliath. It is the time before he's really on the run from King Saul. It's this time period in between where he, David is actually serving in Saul King Saul's court and if you want to read about that later that's in 1st Samuel 18 and 19 predominantly so in in this this time period what you see is it's it's a time of tension as as David's success on the battlefield grows almost in tandem with that the jealousy of King Saul is growing as well towards towards David of course and so, so in, the, in the beginning stages, in the early stages, uh, Saul, his jealousy begins to express itself simply in, oh, wanting to ensnare David into a, a marriage with uh, his eldest daughter. And that fails, and Saul and his jealousy is increasing, his frustration with this, this young rival is increasing and what to do. And so he, he begins to plot and plan, well, perhaps I can simply get rid of him by sending him out to battle against overwhelming odds, and that doesn't work either. And so over time, Saul's jealousy begins to shift into rage, and the subtleties of his plans and ploys begins to shift into outright attempts at murder. It's quite striking. And, and, and this is hardly the, the only uh, stressful situation that David found himself. And, of course, as a young shepherd boy and going against the lion and the bear protection of the sheep, no doubt that was a, those were stressful situations as well. And now the experience that he has in the years, of, well, the time that he is serving in Saul's court and the years that he is spending on the run prior to his actually becoming the king, uh, that we know him now today as the, the, the king of Israel. All of this, all of this were, these were important, just vitally important for David. Leadership training is what this was, setting the, the, the tone for David to then be able to serve as the king and the shepherd of God's people. So th- this was hardly the first such stressful situation and circumstance that David found himself in. Uh, and it was certainly preparatory in, in that. What, what my point in saying all this is we don't know. It, this could well have been. This could well have been the context of Psalm 11. But we don't actually know. And that's okay because what that does is it means that it becomes more widely applicable for us in our own stressful, difficult circumstances and situations. My point, uh, really, in bringing all this up is, put it this way, is to say, given all that David faced and all the difficulties, all the stressful circumstances and situations that he faced, given all the... If, the, if, if, if a, a posture to life and those circumstances and difficulties, serve David well, as we read here in Psalm 11, this type of posture, this sort of approach, if this served him well in those extreme circumstances, how much more so us and ours? How much more so us and ours? Yes, his circumstances were extreme to be sure, whether it was what we read about in 1 Samuel 18 and 19 or something that happened later. So, yes, absolutely they were extreme. But they point us, every one of us, towards a profound reality that's, that this psalmist is taking us towards, and that every one of us would do well to live out of. And that is simply this Though the world around us seems to be collapsing, the Lord is our refuge. Though the whole world, everything we know and prize and hold dear, is collapsing, the Lord is our refuge. That's what we see in the psalm. Now we're going to unpack this for just the next few minutes, and we're going to do so by looking at two sides of this, two sides of this. And the first is simply this: the temptation to despair. The temptation to despair, and the, and the second is. The, the path of resistance, how, do, how we resist, how we push against that temptation to, to give up, to give in, to despair. Two simple points, two simple points just coming at the psalm in, in, in this way. So Psalm 11, uh, the temp- looking at the first the temptation to despair, to give up, and it's real. It's, it, it's, it's real. We, I used this term uh, last week, Some of you may remember the, the Bible's approach and perspective on life is anything but Pollyannish. And we certainly see that here. This is not a reality denial. This is reality engagement. So you look at verses 1 through 3, and you see the temptation that David is facing to despair, to give up. Let's look at it again. In the Lord I take refuge. So that's his statement. Here comes a question. So it would seem that the, his, the counsel of his advisors is ringing in his ears. And so now he's, he's almost repeating back to them what they've said. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, this is, what, this is the counsel that he has received, and it's the counsel that he's responding to. And it sounds reasonable. It, it sounds reasonable. It sounds, it sounds sensible. I and mean, after all, clearly, clearly I mean, this is not something that they're making up. This is hostile opposition that David is facing, perhaps well-skilled assassins in the dark, maybe literally that, sent by Saul, or at the very least, evil, wicked slanderers. Assassination can take place in two different realms, you know. So it, it, one of those, perhaps both of those were not... So, but the, the point being a hostile opposition, David is facing hostile opposition, and it seems just to be, according to his counselors, his advisors, a hopeless situation. Everything just seems, seems to be coming apart at the seams. Anarchy, if you can use this phrase rightly in any way at all, anarchy is reigning. It seems hopeless so much so that, well, maybe it's just, it just... It's time to give up, give in, throw in the towel... And again, this advice, this counsel that they're giving to to their king sounds reasonable. It seems practical. It seems sensible. David, run. Run. And, and it's likely well-intentioned. Not only does it sound reasonable, and it seems to make sense at some level, it's, it's likely well-intentioned. These, these men, his advisors, his counselors don't, they have, there's no sense in this that, that, that they would intend to, to hurt him as though they're scheming to undo him, but rather they intend to help. The problem is, is that they're in the dark. They're in the dark. They don't, they're not seeing the whole picture. Not seeing it truly and deeply. Much like when Peter said to Jesus, when Jesus said he was going to Jerusalem and was going to be killed by the chief priests and elders, and Peter said, No, you can't go. That can't be the right way to go. Peter meant well, but he was in the dark. He was in the dark. Peter, like David's advisors in this this scenario, in this situation, had had, had conflicting understandings of what and who real refuge is. So what we see here at the very least is that some counsel can sound reasonable and be well-intentioned. The problem is is it can be rooted in fear and if it's rooted in fear it inevitably will take us to a place of being tempted to despair so so what do we do with this just just thinking about this what do we make of all this well the first thing is is just to face the danger of being deceived every one of us every one of us in some way to face the very real danger of being deceived just put it this way not all advice is worth hearing and heeding and we know that. No doubt some of you have heard this expression, consider the source. Well, we always need to be considering the source of the advisors, the counselors, whatever form that might be that we're hearing and, he- and being thinking about heeding. Consider the source. What is their perspective? Or if I can put it this way, thinking about those that we are listening to, where are they coming from? Those whom we are listening to, where are they coming from? What is their perspective? What are the assumptions? What are the presuppositions that they're operating under? What is their worldview? What is their worldview? And going just a little further, just interrogating even ourselves at this point, what is it about what they're saying that I find to be so attractive? Why is this input resonating with me? Those are questions that we would do well to consider, and we see it coming out here. We see it coming out here in this temptation to despair. But there's one other thing in terms of the danger, the very real danger all of us face in terms of being deceived, and that is we ourselves, we ourselves could be fear-filled advisors. And by that, in this case, I I don't necessarily mean advising other people, like we're we're speaking something that's not helpful to other people, that we might meet it and all that kind of thing. That's not what I mean. I'm thinking more in terms of we're the ones providing the voices that we are listening to. It's the internal dialogue going on inside us. And we need to be interrogating that as well. You know, there's something about the, the, the shaking of the walls or the drumbeats of the army that's approaching that has us filled with fear. And that's uh, coloring, flavoring, the whispering voices that we ourselves are listening to, just within, just that internal with dialogue within. And when we find ourselves doing that, we need to own that. We need to own the fear. And then remember, this simple thing is, again, that the psalm is pointing us towards it. Though the world around us seems to be collapsing, the Lord is our refuge. The Lord is our refuge. Well, that then takes us into the second point. You may remember what we were saying earlier is that uh, David, he, uh, there in verse 1, we hear his posture. In verses 2 through 3, what we're seeing here is he's, he's incensed re- reflecting back to his advisors and counselors what it is that he is hearing. Well, now in verses four through seven, you have the path of resistance, what it is that he's countering with. What's, well, you could put it this way, what it is that's informing what it is, his stance there in verse one. So let's read verses four through seven again. It's, it's really worth hearing uh, and paying attention to. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Again, this is, this is David's response to his advisors, to his counselors, and it's worth noting there that just in verses 4 and 5, three times he mentions the Lord explicitly. You see the fourth time if you keep on reading down to verse 7. What does that tell us? The Lord dominates David's landscape. Everything, the lens through which David sees all of this the uh, filters through which he hears the counsel that he is receiving, all of that is informed by the fact that the Lord dominates his landscape. And you can see it there just in the way he expresses himself. It comes right, just rolls right out of him. And there, there's three things, one that's somewhat implicit and the two that are clearly explicit in terms of uh, the things that, that David is holding to and that hold him. In the midst of all of this. And the first is recognizing a tower. Now, that's the one that's implicit. It's not actually stated in the text. But imagine with me, if you can, there's a perspective here. There's a perspective here of a place up high from which you can see that everything that is happening is happening according to God's designs and plans and purposes. There's nothing that is outside of his control. Nothing, not a single, single thing. He sees all twice there in verse 4. Mention is made of God's eyes or his eyelids, so his sight. So he sees all, nothing escapes his view. He sees everything, he takes it all in. He sees all, he knows all, absolutely. The judge of all the world will surely do right. Right. If not at least partially in this life, surely, completely, and fully in the age to come. We see that reflected here. This, this idea of the, the tower, this one who sees all and who tests his own. And that's reiterated there as well. At least twice you see that, those words used here as well. He tests His own. Are the hard things that we encounter, the hard things that we just think it feels like just kind of come upon us seemingly out of nowhere? It's never actually like that. It's never random. It's never haphazard. It never just happens. But rather, these things are all according to His intent and purpose, which most often at least partially, partially is going to include His desire to transform us, to refine us, that's the sense in which testing is used here, like, the, like, like a, of a metal and, and, and bringing up the heat such that the dross can be pulled out and it can be more refined and purified in the course of that. He sees all and he tests his own. That's the sense of God tower. And David recognizes that in the midst of everything that's happening. But it's not just that. He it's not just that he sees God as purposeful. He sees God as powerful. Of course, if you don't have power with a purpose, that doesn't do you much good, does it? So he, sees, he understands the Lord to be both purposeful and powerful. God on the throne. There is a throne in heaven, he says there in verse 4. Very clearly, God is the one who, whose rule and reign knows no bounds, no boundaries, no limits. None whatsoever. I was thinking about that just the other day. What does it mean to say God rules? Well, it at least means this. It means that He decides. He decides. He does not walk into a committee <laughs> and take a vote. This is, this is not a debate. He, doesn't, he, is, he is not prone to, to take polling data and, sees, and wants to see how everyone feels. And there's a place, of course, for that. I don't mean to play that down and mock it. That's not my point. But the Lord rules. He is the king. He is the mighty one. Overall, overall, he decides. And he determines. He determines the orbits of stars. The track of storms. Path of birds the length of our days he decides and he determines for he is the king on the heavenly throne David sees these things he recognizes these things he feels these things he knows these things and this informs the posture that grid I mentioned the lens I mentioned he understands God to be both purposeful and powerful, and not just that, but with us. And that's the third point, that being that it's not just the tower and it's not just the throne, but it's the temple. It's the temple. God is with us. God is among his people. He is close. That's what the temple fundamentally, more than anything else, the tabernacle, as well, but that was earlier, but now the, the temple is being made refer, referred to here. And this, this, the Israelites understood that the, the temple of God, this earthly sanctuary, was something almost like a doorway to the heavenly sanctuary. And so, as, as profound as it was, is to say that the Lord was for his people, and oh, has he made that eminently clear. He is not just for his people, but he is with his people. He is among his people. God, in the richest, deepest sense, with us, not only for us, but with us. And as, as though that wasn't explicit enough here in the text, you read on just down to the very end there in verse 7 where David says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Now, it may not come out immediately in the English, and I understand that, but, but uh, Hebrew experts will tell you and commentators will tell you that that phrasing, the upright shall behold his face, is the language of a kingly court referring to, alluding to, being allowed into the presence of the king. That's what that language conveys. There's something deeply personal, something deeply relational and royal about all of this. So again, what we see here is David's stance, his position, as he's listening to what these advisors, these counselors, however well-intentioned they may be, are telling him, and he's being tempted to give up and to despair. He's held nonetheless, gripped nonetheless by this idea, the reality of God. Purposeful, the tower. Powerful, the throne. And present, the temple. There's a lot here for our head. There's a lot here for our hearts. There's a lot here for us to think about. Even more so for us to embrace. And truly take to heart, truly, truly take to, to heart. I put it this way. We'll put the question before us. How do we lay hold of this? What do we do with this? How do we lay hold of this? Well, you begin, you have to begin by going low, by going low. The way you lay hold of this is you have to go low. We have to humble ourselves. And recognize our need of the tower, of the throne, of the temple. We have to begin by bowing. We have to begin by acknowledging our deep, profound need of this one who is at work in our lives in these ways. And as we do, as we recognize that we are not independent in any way at all—not sanely, but utterly dependent upon the Lord. As we grow and grow, as we come to recognize that, in fact, we are truly dependent upon Him in every every way, and we know the Lord to be our daily refuge. Then when the troubles come, when the hard times blow up, when the circumstances come upon us, feeling like we're just going to be overwhelmed and the wave is cresting over the wall, we know where to go. We know where to go. We know where to run. We're not not guessing. We're not frenetically running around wondering, crying out. No, we know. We know. We know. We know. We know that though the world at times seems like it's collapsing around us, the Lord is our refuge. The Lord is our refuge. Bringing this to a close, I want to take us, oddly enough, back to where we started. Right back to where we started there in verse 1. And that opening sentence, it's really profound. As I said earlier, it really sets the stage for everything else that follows in the psalm. In the Lord, I take refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. What does that mean? Beyond just the imagery, what do we do with that? Come tomorrow morning. What would it mean for you and I to actually say that and mean it and live it out? In the Lord, I take refuge. This concept of refuge is anything but new here in Psalm 11 or even in the Psalms as a whole. You see it time and time again all through the Psalms, but all through the Old Testament as well, this concept of a a refuge. Think of, some of you may be familiar with the concept of, in the Old Testament era, of the cities of refuge. And, And what this was was an arrangement at the time as to, well, what would you do if you have someone who because of their actions accidentally take someone else's life and what what do you do well this was a network of cities places that they could go such that they could be safe from bloodthirsty family and friends and therein sever what would otherwise be an endless cycle of revenge that was the idea and was quite effective in the ancient worlds well at least in israel and So so David, and his contemporaries, would have known something of the the cities of of refuge and a place where you could be safe and where otherwise you would be in danger of being pursued. Children know something of what it is to have a refuge, and no doubt no few of us adults can remember back to when we were younger and the games that we would play, and it would be something along the lines of some, some version of tag, right, and you're running around outside, hopefully not inside, but running around outside, and there's a base, right, And once you touch base, you're safe. No one can pursue you. No one can chase after you anymore. It's your refuge. You're safe. You're safe. What's it mean? Again, back to the question, what's it mean for the Lord to be our refuge? What does it mean to say, in the Lord, I take refuge? Here, David is not speaking of a geographical place but a relational bond He is speaking of the bond the tie between a king and his subject between a father and his child he is speaking not of a place but of a person that you are looking to and leaning into with everything you are your whole life Your whole life, you you are trusting and depending upon the Lord as your refuge. His instruction for your days, His wisdom for your choices, His strength for your trials, His promises that you might have assurance, His forgiveness for your guilt, His pronouncement and singing over you for your shame. Him and in Him alone you look to for those things and no other because you know there to be no other city, no other base, no other refuge, just Him. When the world feels like it's collapsing around us, the Lord is our refuge. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it doesn't really take a global pandemic for us to see our need. Long before that, it was obvious. the relational divides our backsliding falls the financial struggles the broken stories the physical ailments the besetting sins the emotional pain the uncertain future it was all there It was all there before. Perhaps we're being reminded of it and being forced to face it just a little bit more directly, but it was all there before. And before, you were our refuge, whether we knew it or not. And you are now, and you will forever be. Not our skills, not our plans. Not our cleverness, not our tenaciousness, not our experience, not our connections, just you. All those things, good and helpful as they may be, if relied on as though they were the refuge, will fail, but not you, never you we ask that you would make a Psalm 11 people such that it would be part of a spiritual muscle memory that we would say from the start and to the finish, in the Lord I take refuge. We pray these things in your name. Our refuge. Amen.